<laughs> yeah, I don't know about professional until we get a real audio editor. Uh, uh, oh, oh, ouch! But okay. yeah, that was that, that was a bit spicy, Moss. <laughs> Ooh, all right, okay. That was harsh, Moss. Well, I'm sorry. We ha- you used to have a real audio editor, you know. All right, and, and now we have Bill. Uh, we're we're doing a lot now of we have Bill. editing lately. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez, well, I'm going to do Bill my best not to be Bill offended. Bill does not have a whole lot of time to sit there and, and get picky about the recording. He just puts it together, and that's fine. Well, I run I'm the just builders. saying we have had uh, okay, real professional want, audio Moss, editing. Moss, do you want to keep digging? He's trying to or? undig his hole, and it's not working. <laughs> you know, it's you not. Know, do you want to pass me the spade? I can help out if you like. <laughs> Welcome to Mitcast, podcast by the Linux Mint community for all users of Linux. This is episode 417.5, recorded on Sunday, July 23rd, 2023. Enjoying the cooler weather, I'm Joe. Getting ready for school, I'm Moss. Building the network, I'm Bill. Singing the Internationale, I'm Majid. In our entered section, we talk ethical telemetry. And finally, the feedback and a couple of suggestions. We'll move on to the Linux innards. This week we have a discussion about ethical telemetry. And for the sake of some uh, background, um, we linked here in the show notes to an article in, on the uh, Fedora project, their wiki, um, that's outlining some uh, changes they want to make in the future around the concept of uh, telemetry and how they want to try to come up with a way of doing it ethically, doing it correctly. Some people think there's no way to do it ethically and correctly because the whole concept of uh, telemetry is unethical on its own. This is, this is another one of those subjects that is full of contention. It's full of opinions. Um, people, and it's all because thus far the, the examples we have of telemetry being used uh, are often by companies that uh, are using it to sell data, to harvest data from users and sell it, and, and it's not made real clear what exactly it is that they're collecting on everybody. So it's tough for an open source project to sort of uh, come up with a way of communicating their desire to do something like this without immediately running into uh, everybody's you know, social barriers and things. But uh, at any rate, the summary on the Fedori Wiki reads, uh, the Red Hat Display Systems team, which develops the desktop, proposes to enable limited data collection for anonymous Fedora workstation usage metrics. Fedora is an open source community project and nobody is interested in violating user privacy. 
We do not want to collect data about individual users. We want to collect only aggregate usage metrics that are actually needed to achieve specific Fedora improvement objectives and no more. We understand that if we violate our users' trust, then we won't have many users left. So if metrics collection is approved, we will need to be very careful to roll this out in a way that respects our users at all times. For example, we should not collect users' search queries because that would be creepy. We believe an open source community can ethically collect limited aggregate data on how its software is used without involving big data companies or building creepy tracking profiles that are not in the best interest of users. Users will have the option to disable data upload before any data is sent for the first time. Our service will be operated by Fedora on Fedora infrastructure and will not depend on Google Analytics or any other controversial third-party services. And in contrast to proprietary software operating systems, you can redirect the data collection to your own private metric server instead of Fedora's to see precisely what data is being collected from you because the server components are open source too. Keep in mind, this Fedora change proposal is just that, a proposal. It must undergo community review and must be approved by the community-elected Fedora Engineering Steering Community, or FESCO, before it can be implemented, just like any other Fedora change proposal. We welcome community participation and fully expect the proposal may need to be modified significantly, depending on... Fedora community feedback. And let me tell you, this is how you send a message out to the community about something you want to make a change on or something you want to work on. The way this is worded without any sort of corporate speak or uh, uh, I, don't, I'm, I can't quite put my finger on it because I'm not a professional at this, but I, you can tell there's something about this that is not condescending at all that is whoever wrote this understands the open source community and how people in this community react to things like this being implemented that's just my opinion okay now there's a uh, there is more that we have in the inner section uh, we don't have to go through all of it because there is quite a bit there that um, i had added in as examples to show you what we're talking about. But um, I wanted to mention at this point that it is telemetry and data analytics that allows us to have a free internet. Okay, not, you know, your internet connection to your ISP, but, you know, everything that is out on the internet. Free search engines and things like that. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of places use an advertising model in order to make money, and it is the telemetry that allows them to use targeted ads that people will actually are more likely to click on, thus making them more money so that they don't have to do things like charge you a monthly fee in order to be able to see how grandma's doing on Facebook. But uh, that being said, there is... Um, a lot of really unethical things that go in to the reselling of data and the data that is collected and can be used. There's a lot of easy ways to do things like uh, violate HIPAA. 
which yes is just a u.s thing i, I don't know what it is o over you know in on majid's side of the pond but uh medical information is your business and it should not be between um you and anyone other than your doctor and the state's uh, uh ag tennessee has had the state attorney general actually reach out and take data from hospitals we are definitely going to get to that okay. too because um pis can go and, and and buy data and police can go and buy data without a warrant and use that to um either um file charges against someone or use it to track someone and now uh, an example of that is this, without a warrant without a warrant okay if the information is is available for sale then they don't need a warrant but Jed, okay. if you haven't done anything you, wrong, look, you've got nothing to hide. Oh, Bill, okay, stop okay, it. And everything to protect. <laughs> no, but a, a quote from Kevin Mitnick is, you, you might not have anything to hide, but you have everything to protect, okay? So the, there's our ode to, to Kevin for the day. But, um, but what about the children, Joe? Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, their data needs to be protected too because, you know, identity theft is a thing. But um also targeted scams are a thing and everything else. But you know, that's a not necessarily a separate discussion, but a little bit more in-depth than we're getting right this second. So now, as an example, uh, wireless carriers faced a $200 million fine for selling location data. And I do remember this time frame because this is where a lot of the discussions around PIs being able to purchase people's location data from wireless carriers in order to track them, you know, find cheating husbands, uh, things like that. And um, police being able to, f to buy this uh, data that the companies were offering without warrants. And use it to either track a person down or just um, use the information to build a case against someone. And that should be completely illegal without a warrant because privacy. But essentially what a lot of people are saying is you're not private anymore. Get over it. Especially, uh, you know, in, in the EU where you've got all those C CCTV cameras set up absolutely everywhere. Um, it is an interesting article and I do recommend... Uh, checking that out if you get a chance. There is a link in the show notes. There's a lot more data there. Uh, I did not want to get too in-depth in it, but really, I mean, it's just insane. The, uh, the data that you can buy on a person if you're, well, you, you don't even need to be a PI or a cop. Stalkers have purchased um, data on the people that they're stalking in order to be able to, to track them and find them and see what they're doing. So um, now uh, I, I put in another link to an article called uh, Top Industries and Companies to Sell Your Data. And I'm going to read off what I thought was the important bits here. And um, the first one is Facebook. Uh, to the surprise of no one, Facebook has built an advertising juggernaut as a uh, first party data miner. The platform aggregates data from its users, interactions, and messages, then shares those insights with partners and individual advertisers interested in reaching its 2.87 or 2.78 billion monthly active viewers. CNET has a great in-depth guide for scrubbing your Facebook data. Um, now, 
like I said, Facebook is free. And so they use the data that they collect on you. You know, if it's free, you are the product. Um, in order to make their money, pay their employees, do all of the, you know, make make it so Zuckerberg can uh, take his uh, jujitsu classes. If affect elections, etc. Well, that's different. The affecting of elections isn't actually so much Facebook doing that. That's uh, people using Facebook's algorithms in order to do that, um, supposedly. But uh, there is a lot of other things. And then, you know, people complain about that. But then when Facebook starts putting in controls to prevent that, then people are saying that they're con trying to control elections and things like that. So there, it's a very damned if you do, damned if you don't situation for them. I mean, to be fair to Facebook, <laughs> I can't believe I've said those words. They have got better. They have got better at you trying to delete your data i'm not saying that they're good at it i'm not saying that they haven't got ridiculous amounts of data on us already but compared to even a couple of years ago you know if you try to delete your facebook account and or, or you know not even delete your facebook account so you just wanted to you know um uh stop all the interconnections and you know limit things like that it used to be really difficult and now it's much easier to do um and then randomly it would reset and, and none of the protections you put into place were there anymore. They were just gone. I mean, as I said, I'm not saying that they're good, but they are better than they were. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, second, Google. Uh, from search and email to maps and video, Google has integrated itself into our cultural lexicon at nearly every stage with ad profits uh, coming in from search placements, YouTube video advertising, YouTube TV ads, and more. The company thrives on using its technology to create curated advertising experiences and shares that data with its active partners. You can manage what data Google can access um, at a link that was provided in the article. It's not provided um, in our show notes. But um, I do you know, want to point out that, you know, I don't have a problem with them using targeted ads, using the information that they get from me. My issue would be when they start selling that ads to people that I don't know. And some of the information, obviously, I don't want them to collect, but I have ways around that, 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 that I use. But, um, what's your guys' opinion on that? Them taking the information that they have and selling it to other people. I mean, the thing that about Google that is actually quite frightening is you know, we're having these discussions about privacy and security um, and our data, and it's a more common conversation in the West, let me put it that way, you know, um, in the, you know, the, the developed economies. I remember this time last year, I was in India, and in India, Android rules the roost, you know, it's vast majority of phones are on Android, uh, different versions of it. And each one, and they're very, very competitively priced. And part of the way that they're very competitively priced is because there's data mining happening. You know, you there's all these services that are on there, whether it's Google um, or other Xiaomi or other vendors or whatever. The amount of data that they're collecting just off normies in the developing world is scary. Every time, like, you know, my mother-in-law would tell me, can you just uh, you know, fix, fix this on my phone or something like that? I'd look, and she would be having ads from here, there, and everywhere, this message, that message, this email. Well, she was just kind of just wiping away and, you know, or just agreeing to or whatever. And it's, 
it's scary how much data they have now I, I you know kind of following on from your point just the fact that they have all this data you know isn't in of itself i mean it's concerning but in of itself it, you know you can argue that well you know it does provide any utility to the the customer it enables us to have gmail uh, youtube things like that you know um even I may be complaining about Google having my data, but if I ever go on YouTube that I'm not signed into, you know, it takes me a bit longer to find the stuff that I actually want to see because, you know, I've got over 10 years of uh, data that YouTube have taken off me. It's the thing that you're mentioning, the selling of that data. And even if you're selling the data, again, that again could be, you know, you could, you know, give them a pass if it was anonymized and this and that and the other, and you could, but it isn't. And that's what makes it worse. Right. And so, you know. Right. And we will get to anonymization in this discussion. Yeah. And I think that's what's scary. But at the same time, and I don't know if this is specific to Google or this is just a part of the wider discussion about the internet in 2023 is it would not function in the way that it does um, if it wasn't for these kinds of practices. It wouldn't be, I mean, we can complain as much as we want, but we all remember the days of AOL and dial-up modems and all that sort of thing. You know, the, the internet's a much easier place and a much more performant place to be than it was 20 years ago. Uh, in and the reality is we, we have so many of yeah, we have so many of these services because the data has been mined yeah. and it's been sold. and Exactly. And, right. And so, you know, right. and, so it's a case of, you know, you can get, I mean, if anybody's ever tried to go like, I've got a mate who's like really into kind of conspiracy theories, you know, proper tinfoil hat. Yeah. And, you know, he's got all sorts of hardened versions of ROMs and this, that and the other on his phone and on his desktop and stuff like that. And it's basically unusable in a, the modern way. I mean, you can use it. I mean, yes, you can. Of course you can. But I mean, it's not in the same way that we're all used to, you know, typing in your Omnibox, whatever you want to search for, Google coming, spitting out results, you know, finding the stuff that you need, buying what you want, whatever it might be. It's just not as smooth an experience. And if you're a real diehard, okay, fine, great. But 99% of the world isn't. Um, and there's huge amounts of data that they've got. And so I, I, I'm a little bit, it's like philosophically, I don't like all this, but at the same time, from a utility pragmatic perspective, you know, it's what makes our services what they are today. Right, right. And you know, okay, so Google has my data. I'm using their services. So I understand that I type things into their servers. They, they own that. Okay, fine. The problem gets to be their security is pretty good. They're a major corporation. Their security is decent. Now, granted, no security is perfect, but theirs is pretty darn good. But I know nothing about their companies that they're selling my data mm -hmm. to. Are, are they secure? Are, are, is it safe for them to have my data? Are they going to get breached and my data gets lost that way? Google's not going to take the blame for that, even though they sold them the data. So... Ooh. Once they have it, if they're selling it and it's not anonymized, then how am I protected? Mm. I'm not. Yeah. And I'm sure that there's oh. many times when I have been hacked 
in some way, shape or form, I'm pretty sure it's because of not the actual service that I was using, but the fact that that service sold that data on to somebody who was probably, yes. you know, not as... Um, Telemarketing yeah. calls. Yeah. Uh, there you go. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I don't know how many okay. times I've signed up to some random thing online, and then like over the next three months, I get nonstop phone calls. I've honestly thought about like setting up um, like um, another Google Voice number specifically yeah. to have that number to be the one that gives out to see who sells my data where. Uh, here's here's an irony. Um, I. I, I mentioned that I, I used to have a Pixel 7 and the Pixels have that uh, screen calling features uh, so that if you if somebody rings and it's a number that you don't recognize, you can just press a thing and then it will talk and say, this is a screen scrolling uh, thing from Google. And then, you know, they will, um, you know, say, leave a message and they transcribe it and then they'll tell you. And nobody ever says anything. Nobody ever talks. I never get anything back. So now I'm thinking... Am I part of the problem? Because by using that screen calling feature, I'm probably giving data for those types of things to have happened in the first place. You know, I'm anyway. Potentially. Yeah. But uh, okay, on the positive um, side, there's always the uh, class action suits that go after data breaches, as I mentioned in my bi weeklies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and those uh, some of those do get mentioned, especially um, with the changing laws in the EU. That that's where you're seeing a lot of um, enforcement when it comes to these large corporations and your data. I, so, I mean, it's interesting actually um, that um, people, you know, people probably know that uh, Meta, you know, Facebook basically uh, launched Threads, their Twitter um, competitor, as it were. Right. And, you know, it's because the dumpster fire that is Twitter nowadays, you know, um, it had all these, you know, hundreds of millions of users in the first week. It's not out in the EU. It's a it's uh, it's not available in the EU because it doesn't follow the data protection and tracking things that are in the EU. So which I thought was very telling. It shows the robustness of some of the laws. If, you know, it's a massive market. And Instagram just said, or, or Meta just said, yeah, we, we're not launching there. We can't. Yeah. We're against the law. Yeah. Okay. So uh, the next company on the list is uh, PayPal. And PayPal processes billions of dollars in financial transactions every year. With that power comes access to billions of personal and financial records that PayPal regularly shares with its third-party partners around the world. Those partners include banks and other payment processors like Wells Fargo and Bank of America. Uh, marketers like Salesforce and LinkedIn and even government agencies. So yeah, they do sell the information to government agencies. It's uh, how a lot of people get caught, you know, um, laundering money and things like that. So, um, I do understand that part there, but still it, it's, it's kind of, you know, uh, financial institutions that that's a little bit scary. Now we even talk about banks doing the exact same thing later on. And that type of thing is, uh, I, I I find extremely frightening. Yeah, I I, I use PayPal a lot um, because it's it does feel more secure. I know I might be sounding stupid now, but you know if you're buying something on some random website, you would rather not be giving them your credit card details for the same reason. And if the option will be there, use PayPal, Google Pay, something like that. And you think, well. They've already got it. So at least if I'm going through that, then I'm, that's 
at least, at least I'm not giving this random website my visa details or my MasterCard details. Um, and it has become very ubiquitous as well. Uh, you know, so many websites will allow you to pay with PayPal. Um, you can um, set up different cards and all sorts of things. Um, I didn't realize this, but PayPal is how Elon Musk made his money. That, yeah. So, um, and he didn't start that well, either. Yeah. Now, I will say that, um, you know, PayPal has been around for a seriously long time, but it did take a bit of a hit uh, a few years back when, um, because it was owned uh, for a while, I think, by the same company that owned eBay. Yes. And it was um, considered um, a monopoly. Yeah, monopolistic practices. Because of yeah. that. So they had to separate and they had to completely separate from eBay and it took them like two years mm. to be able to, to remember that. have that separation there and then reintegrate back into eBay so that you could directly use PayPal. Otherwise you had to jump through some hoops to get PayPal and eBay to, to yeah. work together. And so, yeah, um, for a while there, using a lot less PayPal and then it, it kind of picked up back again, at least, you know, for me and my perspective i mean you know we talk about alternatives in you know when we talk about like well you know instead of using google use DuckDuckGo or start page or whatever instead of using facebook use whatever instead of using whatsapp use telegram you know people talk about or signal or whatever is there i mean again this might just be my ignorance is there something of that sort when it comes to paper no, there are services that will, as an alternative to using like PayPal, that will um, generate you a uh, temporary credit card number mm. with your name attached to it so that you can do a transaction or do two transactions and then it's gone. Mm. And I think like Google Pay offered one of those, but that doesn't seem like um, much of an improvement telemetry-wise. I've seen uh, a lot of these kind of, fintech companies so like revolut starling wise they will allow you know they will make a single disposable virtual card so if you want to buy something you can then make up this card it will then connect to your account so you'll still pay it properly but then you can, you'll never be used again i suppose right. you could say that that is a safer way of doing it especially if you're going off onto random websites to buy stuff maybe um chinese yeah Team product. Team. Um, team. So uh, yeah, uh, I'm just just interested if there was anything else that was more um, secure. I, I'm sure that there are other even, ones, but there's not going to be anything. Even in. if there was another one, it has to be integrated into a large number of other websites to be used. Right. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say that there's not another one that's as ubiquitous as, as PayPal. Yeah. Okay, and then the, the next two, um, you know, you got Oracle and Axiom. And now Oracle, unlike the other three big tech brands, Oracle openly sells data to marketers worldwide. The Oracle Data Cloud Group equips business-to-business -business marketers with over 400 million business profiles and thousands of audience segment profiles. And then there is a way to opt out, and that was included in the article. And then Axiom, uh, similar to Oracle, Axiom boasts the most expansive and compliant data offering in the world, with over 10,000 attributes covering more than 2.5 billion customers. Axiom's database covers more than like 62 countries and 68% of the world's digital population. The data is collected and sold to marketers for audience analysis 
and strategic planning. And there was also an opt-out link in that article. And then they also covered your, um, um, what is it? The, credit reporting credit agencies. Companies. Cre credit reporting agencies. Thank you. And the, this, this is scary because basically those three companies control the world. Um, now that's, uh, Equifax, Experian and TransUnion. Now the, uh, most notorious of the three Equifax made headlines in 2017 after data breach exposed social security numbers, birthdays, addresses, credit card credentials, and other personal data for 145.4 million Americans. Now, this is another company that, you know, ha has the money to, to implement security and you would assume that they implemented it well. And then, you know, data got breached. I was impacted by that breach. So, um, yeah, it's, that's just terrifying. And likewise, uh, Experian collects personal data from over a billion people and organization, then sells the information in bulk to banks and credit card companies like Citigroup or Capital One so that they can, you know, target you for loans, credit cards, bank accounts, etc. Then TransUnion, sometimes the easiest way to gather customer information is just to ask for it. Be an ebook, webinar, video series, uh, brush pack, or promotional code. Companies regular. I guess this is separate from TransUnion. I didn't copy yeah, it right. Yeah, it doesn't uh, look so like it's separately, related. Yes. Yeah. Separately, sometimes the easiest way to gather customer information is just to ask for it. Be it an ebook, webinar, video series, brush pack, or promotional code. Companies regularly collect personal data simply by gating it behind a registration form by filling out the form and registering for the incentive audiences enter themselves into the company's lead generation system for future engagement. Now that was uh, somewhat what Bill was talking about earlier about entering data in and then starting to receive crazy phone calls. <sighs> now, uh, did you guys want to talk about that or do you want me to move on to how companies profit and use your personal data? Yeah, go ahead and move on. Okay, in order to continue to receive services like Facebook and Google for free, the use of our personal data seems to be a price users are forced to pay as companies that do not produce any actual products seek profitability. But are a few targeted ads an acceptable price to pay for access to the largest library of knowledge and communal space in human existence without the ability to sell us products and services? Our personal information users would be faced with either being confronted with a scattergun approach to advertising or having a... Pay a fee as for Netflix for traditionally free services such as search engines and social media. By using our personal data, companies can argue that they are giving us a better customer experience and keeping the internet largely free at point of entry. The inherent concept of our personal sentiments and interests being used to increase upselling opportunities is one that many people will find distasteful and would prefer not to participate in. Despite the possibility of a change in the way they can make purchases as they feel their data is being used without their consent and is a violation of privacy. However, it is worth remembering that monetization of customer data is as old as the grocery store loyalty card and hardly a new invention of the internet. The only difference being that we notice the advertising online as we use it almost constantly as compared to just once a week at a grocery store. Joe, I, I yeah. did look at the previous article and there you didn't do anything wrong. That's just the way the article was. They just okay, just listed TransUnion trans and went on to the next paragraph. Yep. All right. Okay. Okay. Now, so that was what I was saying earlier um, in regards to how companies profit and use your data. That link is also in the show notes about, you know, 
the internet being free because we're a product. But um, now that's pretty much the end of the examples that I had provided for um, how data is currently being used and the ways that it can be abused. Um, so it, it, next, I, I, we were going to get into the um, more ethical ways to do it and some of the, the changes that are being made. Like the next article, which I really didn't copy anything from to, to give you an idea on, was the state of consumer data privacy laws in the U.S. and why it matters. And it was an interesting article, um, and I, I'd really like it if you guys, or if people could go and check that out on their own. Um <sighs> It's saying how, you know, um, medical information could be used and how T-Mobile uh, had a data breach and had information on a bunch of people that um, were never even customers and um, the things that the laws currently don't do and how fitness trackers can be used and um, smart thermostats and everything else. And uh, it, it is another rather scary article on the way things get used and even discuss HIPAA and medical information. Now, the next article is the importance of ethical data collection. Um, somebody else want to read this real quick? I can do it. Yeah. Uh, there are several ethical considerations related to data collection in place. Ethical considerations are the ethical practices that govern how data is gathered, stored, and exchanged. These can include obtaining unambiguous and informed consent, storing data securely, and obtaining permissions to use or share data. While gathering and analyzing personal data can provide valuable customer insights and perhaps enhance the quality of service that firms deliver to those customers, it can only be contemplated if the data acquired is secure. And they now list a bunch of questions on that. Where would the data be procured? Which data collection techniques should be used? Is it necessary to obtain consent? Who will be in charge of hosting, accessing, and controlling the data? And are all of our actions transparent and auditable? Okay, there is actually a lot to unpack here. Um, now, collecting the data, you know, I understand that. Um, storing the data securely, that needs to be done. And But the um, when it comes to, like, permission the the obtaining consent to collect data that's one thing and then all would they also need to obtain consent to share the data i think so i i think that would be ethical for them to just for us to decide whether or not our data can be shared um now de-anonymized or anonymized de-anonymized is a whole nother thing anonymized is uh a lot better but it has to be uh, anonymized well. And another thing that really kind of bugs me is the whole um, opt-out functionality of a lot of your data collection. Because um, opt-in is what I would prefer on everything, but I do understand that a lot of people just aren't going to bother reading and will click straight through, which is why opt-out is a bit of an issue for me because yeah people should know what they're getting into so uh, what, what do you guys think about that i mean there is something to be said about um priorities that you know is it is it a cultural change that we need to have um where everybody starts really checking you know why is it that 
I can, why is this opt-in? Why is this opt-out? Do you kind of get what I mean? It's more, it seems to be more of a cultural change that needs to happen. Is it, before would it be enough to just, just do like, I don't understand what is keeping somebody from just, don't make it opt-in or opt-out. Just make it something that you have to make a decision one way or the other in order to move on in the installation process. I mean, what's stopping us from doing that? Because Well, that is opt-in and yeah, opt-out. Yeah, that's exactly that, isn't it? But, it? but what I mean is it's not opt-in or opt-out by default. It's you have to decide one way or the other, and there is no there is no default uh, option. So there's no argument to be made that the company is choosing okay, one okay. over the other is what so I'm saying. The, n neither box is checked and you have to pick one Correct. before you move mm. on. Okay, I see what you're saying there. I mean, what's stopping us from doing but that? But isn't that because just then... opt-in by default? Well, no, because you cannot move forward from there until you decide one or the other. I mean, and neither, like, like you have a box, you have a box, yes, you got a box, no, and they're both grayed out, or, well, the, the yeah. moving on box... The next box is grayed out until you choose no. one of those. I think a lot of this is due to um, how bad EULAs have gotten. Mm. Like, for the last forever. I mean, when you have 15 pages of legal text that they oh, yeah. expect you to read before you, you click I accept, uh, there's not they a single person that I know of that it. doesn't scroll all the way down to the bottom yeah. and agree to sell their firstborn for pennies on the dollar yep just give me the shiny thing right yeah no I, I i don't know i for me personally when it's an open source project i'll give them anything they ask for in Ooh. terms of data i mean honestly because especially when it's a project and i'll use audacity as an example because that's that's a project that is monetized but it is offering a linux port a windows port and a mac port and it doesn't take a genius to know that the vast majority of their users are using the Windows version. Well, I want them to know that they have Linux people using that software. But right. A, and that's easily anonymized data. A too. big difference oh, between what uh, MuseScore decided to do on that and what uh, Fedora is talking about doing is quite literally who's storing the data. Yeah, no, you're right. Because MuseScore is storing it on an Amazon website. And so Amazon has, by contract, access to that data. Are they actually doing that, or was that the the option that they were considering? And then, because I remember some rumbling, what, year before last, when they announced they were going to use Yandex and Google Analytics and things, and people just... Yeah, well, they were going to use Yandex, Google, and Amazon, and I think they settled for yeah. just Amazon Web Services. Hmm. But yes, Fedora was going to keep all their stuff, if they do it, is going to keep all their stuff on the Fedora servers. And that's, I mean, somebody has to be the one to go out and, you know, set this up and make it work and then show everybody else, you know, that this is this is doable. Um, just saying your thing about, you know, you can't go forward unless you uh, pick an option. Is that... I would assume that companies are looking at that and thinking this is that's going to decrease the amount of participation in our app because there's going to be some people who are just like oh it's not working forget it I'm not going to use it um, 
And so also like we were talking about earlier when it comes to deciding all the applications to install or not install with um the the new Ubuntu that they're talking about it's the exact same thing. You're basically just, you know, a, a recipe for decision fatigue and go pick something mm. else that's easier yeah. to to do. Well that does bring that's that's as a side point what do you do in that case? Okay, that's a great idea. Make it to where the the user has to choose one or the other. What about if the if this is a uh, package that is installed by default? Do you make that part of the OS installation process that each one of these applications has to be agreed to? You know, share the information or not as part of the uh, the OS install process. And I can see how that would get to be. A nightmare. Tedious. Yeah. Mm. Are we ready to move it's on? It's complicated. Yeah. Okay, we've got one small section left that I think we're going to have to do quite a bit of discussion on. And that's uh, data anonymization, use cases, and um, six common techniques is the name of the article. Um, now, data anonymization is a method of in information sanitation which involves removing or encrypting personally identifiable data in a data set the goal is to ensure the privacy of the subject's information data anonymization minimizes the risk of information leaks when data is moving across boundaries it also maintains the structure of the data enabling analytics post anonymization uh, typical uses medical researchers and healthcare professionals examining data related to the prevalence of a disease among a certain population would use data anonymization. This way they protect the patient's privacy and adhere to HIPAA standards. Or whatever standards may be in marketing, your country. Right. Um, well, marketing enhancements. Online retailers often seek to improve when and how they reach their customers via digital advertisements, social media, emails, and their website. Digital agencies use insights gained from customer information to meet the increasing need for personalized user experience and to refine their services. Anonymization allows these marketers to leverage data in marketing while remaining compliant. Software and product development developers need to use real data to develop tools that can deal with real life challenges, perform testing, and improve the effectiveness of existing software. This information should be anonymized because development environments are not as secure as production environments. And if they are breached, sensitive personal data is not compromised. Now, I think this article was a bit narrow in its scope, but it was still good information on data anonymization in general. But um couple of things here uh i think data anonymization is actually the way to go to still provide yeah, the information to all, all of these all, all of these marketers and everything that um are, are giving you a essentially a free internet in order to to be able to make their own money the question is um, how how to anonymize or how do they make money no so how do we get this to become the new standard how do you get right. people to, okay, go, all right, we can still make money from anonymization. Let's do it that way. And then, you know, customers happy, we're happy because we're still making money, et cetera. Because let's be honest, that's what it's, it's going to come down to money, isn't it? You know, that's the reason why people are selling right. our data in the first place. They're telling it to make money. So if they can make money, right. they'll do it. If it's, if they'll do the maths and figure out that actually it's going to cost us X amount and we're only going to make X, uh, Y amount of uh, money out of it, they're not going to do it. Um, and so I agree with you entirely. This is the way forward. I'm just wondering how we get to that position. 
And well, there are issues with it too. Um, I mean, with that anonymization, you're losing out on specifically targeted ads towards specific people. You know, if I say that I'm looking for a router, then if my data is, is anonymized, then how does Amazon know to start showing me routers on their front page, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, so yeah, I, I don't know how we would get that shift there or how ubiqui ubiquitous that we could make it, but it is something that I think that needs done. Um, I mean, I suppose, the I mean, I suppose one, I don't know if this is true, but some people would say, you know, the co the companies aren't going to do this because they're not going to make as much money from the resource. You know, you, if you're already making $100 per megabyte, as an, I don't know if that's even a sensible thing to say, but, you know, then why would you willingly make only $75 uh, uh, per megabyte or whatever it might be? Um, so is it really more of a case of the onus is then back onto the us as the users to be um more uh, private and secure in what we do you know usage of vpns things like that you know um is that really the only way it's going to happen right now the onus is on the user to use uh secure methods and, and your own anonymization methods but if that you know, became widespread enough, then obviously companies would have to take that into account and start utilizing the data that way anyway. And once they did that, the first companies that made the switch publicly to say that we're using only anonymized data would be the one that everybody flocks to. Is that necessarily the case though? I think the people generally, as again, I'm including non-techies, go to what works. Yeah. Um, and so it, they don't give they don't give a care on earth about these things that we talk about as long as right. they're getting the thing they want. Yeah, right. This is just this is just something us nerds talk about because it's of interest to us because we're we have an interest in the, you know the technical background of these things mm -hmm. and because we can see a future a, you know a dystopian future where these things are you know used against us. Or we can well, see the we can see the technical shortcomings of these systems and how it could be stolen and used to scam us. You know. Well, you do, can't you can't tell me that all your inf online information doesn't come up in like a background check or something. No. So, but yeah, is it so just it, us? You know, is it just people like us that care about these things? And normal people, they'll just take and and yeah, and you could have you could also throw it. You know, when you mentioned about background information, if we are particularly, you know, sensible and secure and private, would that itself not be a red flag to somebody? Somebody would go, oh, um, we've not got much data. Yeah, some people do interpret no. things that way. Yeah, yeah. Some people will go, when, when, no. When it when it comes to a background check, like. Uh, for a job or something like that, less information is actually better. Okay. The less information that they can find on you, that means that you did less horrible things because it's the bad things that really get mm -hmm. recorded. And yeah. Fair point. The other things get recorded too, but that's not what they're looking for. I, I just remembered something. I probably should have mentioned it a bit earlier on when we were talking about uh, PayPal. So again, as I said, this time last year, I was in India and uh, this was my first trip since COVID. And, you know, the big move to contactless, you know, kind of ways of uh, buying stuff. Now, in the UK, 
that has really gone to, you know, the use of contactless cards, use of Google Pay or Apple Pay and things like that. That's that's what's uh, we've been that's what's contactless in the UK, you know, and and I think in Europe as well. Contactless in India is uh I mean the service is also still called Google Pay, but it's a different service. Um and it's it's basically QR codes, you know, that you pay for something, you scan a QR code and you know, you can buy even like stuff at a um uh, like a you know some street vendor selling you know pakoras or something you know um and then i kind of and so it, because i didn't have that it was causing me a bit of a i won't say an issue but you know i was always kind of like i was giving cash and they were looking at me like what kind of neanderthal am i giving cash so i tried to sign up for it and when i started signing up for it i realized that the it's basically called the upi the unified payments infrastructure i want to say infrastructure i can't remember what the i stands for um and basically everything is linked to your bank account and it is a government service so all of these vendors like google or there's other ones called phone pay and things like that they were all going through a government back end linked to your bank account and when you uh, and when you downloaded the app and done all that you'd had to like give your um uh driving license or your passport or this or that and you know your address and you know your blood type actually <laughs> included and and yet everybody was using it you know it was by far the most common way to buy anything or uh, and even like when you know you'd want to split a bill people would be like oh yeah let's just go on to the uh, Paytm, that was the other name of the service. They all, but they all went on the back end to the same thing, the same UPI. So there's a there's a system which is probably the world's nightmare if you're thinking of data collection and people monitoring, because it's literally all going to the government, you know, and it's all going through your bank account, and all of these things have all of your, you know, scanned copies of your driving license on there, everything, yeah. But people are using it because it's easy. And it's, it's easy. It's set up in a way that makes sense to normal people. Yeah, exactly. And so the fact that they're giving all of this data to, frankly, a quasi-fascist government. I'm sorry, that's my own politics coming in. <laughs> yeah. But and people are just like, yeah, just the way it is. Why haven't you got it? Why can't you sort it out? And I'm like, imagine if this was set up in the West. You know, even the normies would no. get annoyed. <laughs> you know. Look. It, it was only this last year that I really started, or not this last year, that I really, really started seeing like NFC payment actually being available in stores. Now, you know, the NFC thing has always been on, on my debit card or whatever, but I've never been able to use it on a regular basis other than at very specific stores until very, very recently. So uh, that is actually appreciated because, you know, I, I use, I don't carry cash. So I use my debit card a lot and it just wears out so quickly. And the card right now garbage too. Yeah. And it's, it's showing up in the truck stops now too, which I really enjoy because the card readers are always messed up when you can just hold your phone or if you've got an, if you got a, a I mean, it became, it it became ubiquitous before COVID to be fair. But after COVID, people just stopped using cash. 
there, oh, yeah. there it became ubiquitous. Yes, here. In the, on your yeah, side yeah, I mean the in the UK. No, because I know that it's been happening for a long time in the UK. And so now, now if I want to use like Google Pay because I forgot my wallet or something, I, I can do that because, you know, I have it set up and I have a card on there and I can use the NFC on my phone yeah. to pay yeah. if I need to. But um, my cards, you know, they got like a two years till they expire type of thing. And I have yet to have one that survived for the entire two year time frame. <laughs> no, that's I've never had that happen either. Yeah. And I'm I'm hoping that with with NFC, I'm not going to have to make that extra trip to the bank to I have a, to get one before it expires. Yeah, I have never I've never had to and definitely never had to since, you know, the advent of NFC replace a card. My, in fact, most of the time I don't carry my wallet with me. I just use my phone, you know. Now, a lot of people will tell you that, you know, ha having the NFC is less secure because, um, you know, somebody could walk up to your back pocket and bump it or yeah. whatever. But um, you got to authorize just, those things. Yeah, you still though. have to authorize yeah, you, it, yeah. Yeah. One, you have to authorize it. Two, you just get an NFC blocking wallet. They're not expensive. Or well, what I do is that the cards that I have set up on my Google Pay uh, are um, they're basically prepayment cards. You know, so there's only a finite amount of money in there. So it's not like they could turn up and just you know take however much they want. I think there's. I think there's a way to link your Google Pay to your PayPal and then your PayPal to your whatever preferred payment system is. Just Yeah, you can do that. It sounds more complicated, but it actually is a little bit simpler. How about a chip in the palm of our hand and then all we got to do is like... Some people do that. I, I was actually thinking about making an <laughs> NFC ring. Yeah, I mean, there is an, isn't there like an Aura ring that does that? Um, yeah, there, there's there's a couple of NFC okay. rings that should be able to do it, but your debit card information is actually a little bit more complex than your regular like um, NFC chips will do. So there's a, some hoops you have to jump through to make it happen, or just put it in the back of our neck, right next to the barcode. That way, when we walk in and out of the school, have we drifted no, a bit? Just, just, <laughs> just we, barcode we, okay. your face, right, bro. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, yeah, yeah, that that was that was a little bit stepping out there. But I do also um with an anonymization is important, you know, so that way they can collect data and have it be anonymous, maybe even have it be regional or whatever. But the problem gets to be that um companies are also really good at de-anonymizing anonymized data. And now I did not find an article on this cuz most Ooh, of this okay. I did this morning. That's interesting. But well, yeah. Okay. So, um, you find out a person is such and such an age, and then you find out that they're also buying beard care products and that, um, they wear X size shoe and, you know, they have yeah. whatever color hair. And then you can use that data to track them down to a specific location and then who they are essentially, or who they're likely to is be. Is that the same as fingerprinting? So, yeah, sort of sort of right. sort of and the fear is somebody could be like using the software in a uh, uh authoritarian regime somewhere um and they're using it to move information back and forth out of said regime and somehow or another because there's so few 
people in a particular region that it would be so much easier to de-anonymize data if you knew just a few very key characteristics and then where that data was coming from. You know, there is that fear. I, these are challenges that have to be overcome or at least addressed to move forward on these things. Did someone yeah. say move so forward? That, that's scary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That, that's, that's another scary thing, the, the de-anonymization of anonymized data. So while anonymization does help, it's definitely not the, the end-all, be-all that you think it might be. Now, some of the articles that I read talked about methods of um, uh, anonymization that would be extremely helpful, encrypting portions, like shuffling portions, and things like that. But if you... And, and, you know, tweaking ages and things like that. But if you do that, then how helpful is the anonymized data? Food for thought. Yeah. Well, I think uh, given that this is going to be a uh, developing topic, I think we should probably plan on revisiting it mm. at some point in the future. But if we don't have anything else, I think uh, we can move on to vibrations from the ether. And we do have some uh, feedback in the form of, uh, well, uh, this is from Alan Gilchrist. Um, and he, he is responding to a discussion that uh, we had about Bitwarden at some point in the previous I episode. I believe that would be Gilchrist. Where, oh, okay. Yes, Gilchrist, actually. But anyway. Gilchrist. I apologize. Um, and he wrote... <laughs> Moss wants me to do a Scottish accent, and that one's hard to like read and do. I if I could just throw random words together, it's one thing, but it's hard. Just to a read. wee note. <laughs> just a wee note. That's Irish. No, that's yeah, Irish. <laughs> that's Irish. Uh, I don't. They don't say hi all though, do they? I mean, I can't hear Scott saying hi. Uh, hi all, just a wee note to try to, sorry Moss, just a wee note to try to clarify your Bitwarden discussion in episode 416, I think. Uh, Majid, yes, Bitwarden is free and open source and free as in beer. Bill, yes, you can pay $10 a year for the premium version, which the Destination Linux guys will happily tell you has one gigabyte. Now, I saw you typed encrypted. Did he actually have encrypted? He had ENC period and you would have been guessing what he was talking Uh, about. okay. Ian's uh, encrypted file storage, two-step login, vault health reports, etc. Yes. Uh, so you were both correct. Regards from regards from Scotland, Alan Gilchrist. <laughs> that wasn't too bad, actually. That wasn't too. Bad. I mean, yeah, admittedly, the the bar is. Well, not... it was a right try in my part. Uh, just stop now, will you? You see, you, you... now you got me going now. Thank God. So I've um, never faced no, we... so much as I do on this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> it came to me there at yeah, the end. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it yeah, comes yeah, and yeah, goes. You were kind of channeling Mel Gibson from Braveheart, was... weren't you? That <laughs> <laughs> may take a bit, Warden. But but here it You may take my password, but you'll never take my encryption. <laughs> encryption. That's a fun word to say with that <laughs> accent. Encryption. 
and they may take our you're lives, right. but they'll never take you're our data. You're a right goob shite now, ain't you? <laughs> Look, your microphone is revolting, Bill. <laughs> it is decided that this must stop. Yeah. It's not going to be long before it shouts, Freedom! <laughs> Uh, okay, so my response to this is, um, yeah, we knew that Bitwarden was open source and free. What what we was trying to sort out was that he was using it, and I haven't paid a. Do you actually? I haven't paid a single paid damn a dime, dime. And he's still getting. Keep your American accent to yourself. <laughs> okay. That sounded almost Texas. I never, I never even spent a single day gum dime there. <clears throat> As someone from Texas, I <laughs> yes, that, that that was not good, Bill. Um, yeah, we knew that it was. We knew all this. What I was trying to work out is: Do you get any like hosted storage for free if you don't pay the ten dollars? Because Majid, no, you have to, to self-host to get the free. So is that what you're doing, so, Jay? No, I'm. I'm just. I'm just using it as a password manager. So I've not got any of the. I'm not using any file storage. Um, when I log into it, it says, you know, you can. Are you self-hosting or are you, you know, using the USA? And I just use the US. And so I just get, just have my passwords on there, you know. So I'm not. And that's that synced between devices. Yeah, synced between all my devices, my Firefox, my different uh, browsers, my Android, even my iPad, which I hate. Have I, have I not mentioned that already? Um, yeah, I've not I've not paid a damn dime. So, the mystery continues. Um, I don't know. So anyway, moving on to check this out. I thought it would be useful uh, to tell people to tell people to check out the new version of 21.2 and tell us what they think of it and let us know in vibrations from the ether. Yeah. I think you'll like it. It's got some it's got some visual niceties that they've kind of they've kind of uh sharpened up on a little bit and it seems to work really well. Anyway, moving on to housekeeping and announcements. Thank you for listening to this episode of Mintcast. If you see something you'd like to hear about, tell us. Send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. Join us live on YouTube, post on the Mintcast subreddit, chat with us on Telegram and Discord, or post directly at https colon slash slash mintcast.org. Next episode will be 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Sunday, August 6, 2023. And there's a link in the show notes to get that converted to your time zone. Next roundtable live stream will be 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Saturday, August 12th, 2023. There's a link in the show notes to get that converted to your time zone. Live stream information is at mintcast.org slash live stream. Wrapping up, how about it, Joe? Where can we get you? Well, I'm on a couple other podcasts. I'm on the Linux Link, Linux Link Tech Show, which is at tllts.org. I'm on the Linux Lugcast, linuxlugcast.com. Uh, you can send me an email directly, jb at mincast.org, or you can buy me a coffee on Kofi. Boss? Well, you can hear me on Full Circle Weekly News every week, Distro Hoppers Digest about every four or five weeks. Uh, my email is bardmoss at pm.me. I'm on Mastodon as at zyvola at hosttux.social. 
And my other contact information can be found at itsmoss.com. Bill? Uh, you can email me, Bill, at mintcast.org. I'm Bill underscore H on Discord. I'm at WCHauser3 at Fostodon.org on Mastodon. Also, check out my two other podcasts, Linux OTC and Three Fat Truckers. Majid? So, you can get me at, you can email me at drmajid at mincast.org. I'm at Atypical Doctor on Twitter. I'm Atypical Anistis on Instagram and Threads because the UK is not in the EU, so we have it. And the Atypical Anistis podcast on Spotify. Before we leave, we want to make sure to acknowledge some of the people who make Mintcast possible. Uh, I suppose myself for the audio editing. Archive.org <laughs> for hosting our audio files. Hobsar for our logo. InitRD for our animated Discord logo. Londoner, among many other things, for our time sinks. And I myself for hosting the server which runs our website website maintenance and the next cloud server on which we host our show notes and raw audio finally last but not least the linux mint development team for the fine distro we love to talk about thanks thanks, thanks clem. clem put it back on the website clem this has been another episode of the mintcast podcast the show notes for this episode are at mintcast.org. You can send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. You can find more information about Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com. You can follow both Mintcast and Linux Mint on Twitter, at Mintcast and at Linux underscore Mint. Thanks to Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com for our theme music, and thanks for listening to this episode of the Mint.